Would, if you, if you would, please join me in prayer. Lord, we pray that you would remind us of the beautiful truth that is found in Romans chapter 8, that we need to be reminded at all times that you are for us. You love us. The fact that you gave us your son, Jesus Christ, how will you not give us all things? And so, Lord, we pray that as we delve into our passage this morning, that you would help us to see that you will use even difficult things in our life to bring about good towards us. And we pray, Lord, that even though they may be uncomfortable, that, Lord, we would see your hand in them, and that, Lord, in the midst of it, it would cause us to love you even more. May you receive all the honor this morning. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, over the last week, we have been in Matthew chapter 18. If you will, please turn back into your Bibles to that. That's found on page 823 of your pew Bible. This chapter is one long sermon from beginning to end. It begins with a question from his disciples, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And it concludes at Matthew chapter 19, verse 1, when our author writes, now when Jesus finished these sayings. We've already noted this beginning question is one of ambition. The disciples want to know who is going to have the greatest authority among them? Who is going to have the most prestige? Now, our first inclination would be to reply with the answer that I always gave in Sunday school, Jesus. You know that answer is right no matter what question is asked, right? I always assume that's the answer that the Sunday school teacher wanted to hear, Jesus. And it, it would be true here. Who has the most authority in heaven? Jesus. Who has the most prestige? Jesus. Who is greatest in the kingdom? Jesus. But as we said last week, context is key. The disciples knew Jesus was the greatest already, but it's clear from the replies that Jesus gives them, they were saying, yes, Lord, you are the greatest, but which of us after that will be the greatest? The answer was most likely stunning to them, because as we'll see, the answer is none of you. Not a single one of you is greater than the other. In fact, I want you to become like little children. I want you to receive one another as family, equal brothers and sisters in terms of status. And I want you to, to be ultra-careful not to cause one of the other children to stumble or be the reason for temptation to sin. I want you to take sin among yourselves seriously, to look after one another. And if one of them tries to separate from the rest, then I want you to have compassion upon them and pursue them like a shepherd pursuing a lost sheep. I don't want sin in each other's lives to cause anyone to perish. In a nutshell, that is what Jesus is communicating. No one is above the other. Like growing children that need discipline, Christians are prone to make mistakes, and we need one another to, to mature. So naturally, a question would arise here. Well, what if the one we pursue is unrepentant? Or what if someone continues in the seriousness of sin, so serious that Jesus said it would be better to lose an appendage than to commit this sin? What if someone is sinning against me and, and they refuse to repent? That is what Jesus is about to address in these next set of verses. It's what we refer to as church discipline. Now, we tend to view discipline as a negative thing, especially in our day and age when, when culture tries to tell us that punishment is a bad thing. I know that Satan would love to wipe out the concept that certain evil actions deserve punishment. That way there would be no need for Jesus to receive the wrath that we deserve from God, nor would we think that we need the righteousness of Christ to stand before the Holy Father. 
But the Bible teaches us that discipline is a good thing. It should mold us into better people, better citizens for the kingdom of God. Every Christian is required to have discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 17 talks about this, and it quotes Proverbs 3, 12, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God intends for all of his children to receive some type of discipline. After all, that's where the, the foundation of discipleship comes from. It's where that word comes from. Discipleship equals discipline. Now, I know that there are some of you who have seen church discipline performed poorly. And in fact, some of you have been deeply wounded and scarred by it. And I'm sensitive to that. But to discount church discipline because it was done poorly is like saying the weapon was the problem in the murder, not the murderer. If only they didn't have the gun, then this wouldn't have happened. If only they didn't have the knife, this wouldn't have happened. If only they didn't have the rope or the blunt instrument or the poison, this wouldn't have happened. We must not blame the process that Jesus established when wicked, self-righteous hearts willed it. He intends this to be for our good. Now, when we speak of discipline, we do so in two ways. Formative discipline and corrective discipline. Formative discipline and corrective discipline. Formative discipline seeks the formation of the disciple through instruction. We are forming or molding the image of the Christian to be Christ-like through teaching. That is what Deuteronomy 6 exemplifies. The text instructs the parents to teach the children the ways of the Lord. That is formative discipline. Corrective discipline seeks to correct one another's thinking or behavior. And there's usually some a punishment that's associated with it. Now, think of the little boy who continuously hits his little sister. The, the mother at first reprimands her son through instruction, but after this continued bad behavior, she puts him in time out, not allowing him to fulfill his own little selfish desires, demonstrating that there are consequences to our bad actions. That would be a form of corrective discipline. And here Jesus implies there's going to be occasions when these little ones who are unrepentant will need corrective discipline. And Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 20 offers us a paradigm of how to conduct discipline. Now I'm going to argue a little bit later it's not intended to be a hard and fast rule, but a pattern in which corrective discipline should occur. And, and I find to be a most remarkable teaching here from Jesus, particularly as he continues his response regarding who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So this morning, I propose to examine these seven verses under five headings here. The purpose of church discipline, the occasion for conducting corrective discipline rather than formative, and the authority of the discipline. And then we're going to need to add two others to that. We need to, to look at a few passages outside of this one to see how this is more of a pattern than something to be strictly adhered to. And finally, we need to remind ourselves before we leave, what is the goal that we are seeking if we are ever called to do corrective discipline as a church? Now, we're not going to be able to exhaust this subject. We're only going to be able to address it in the time that we have as it relates here to Matthew chapter 18. But allow me to read our verses to you once again. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. 
But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So before we look at this paradigm here, let's see the purpose. And we can see why this discipline here is important. And it's found in verses 15 and verse 17. The reason you want to perform this corrective action is because you have a brother or a sister, and I do think that the text implies ladies as well as men, you have a brother or a sister who is in danger of being outside the family. If the initial contact between the two individuals is positive, you have regained a brother, which implies a brother or sister was not acting in a manner consistent with the family. We see the same again in verse 17 with the final consequence of unrepentance. If they're acting like they don't belong in the family, then let it be so. The Jewish disciples of Jesus would have understood this. Pagan was someone that was outside the covenant community. A tax collector was someone who colluded with the Gentiles and betrayed the covenant community. They would know this was someone who was no longer identifying as a member of the family. The purpose of the discipline was to seek to restore the sinner so that their outward and their inward demeanor is consistent with belonging to Christ. So let me say that again. The purpose of the discipline was to seek to restore the sinner so that their outward and inward demeanor is consistent with belonging to Christ. So how should they go about doing this? Well, Jesus offers a four-step process here as a paradigm. First, if you were sinned against, you would go to your brother and sister and work it out on your own. Now, we need to be clear here. The type of sin we're talking about is some sort of consistent transgression within someone that claims to be a believer that is inconsistent with being a follower of Christ. Though we're always to take sin seriously, in fact, I would point out verses 8 and 9, we are not called to nitpick and police one another's behavior. We have the Holy Spirit to take care of daily conviction of sin. For example, I have certain sins that I repeat over and over again, and I keep working on them to repent and bring them under the Lordship of Christ. That is consistent behavior with a Christian, but it's the ones that we're being unrepentant towards where people are starting to look at us and question whether or not we know Christ himself. Now, I know this to be true about every single one of you. Though you may be a Christian, I know that you live in this world and that you will continue to sin every day, if not every hour. On, on any given day, some of you are going to lash out in selfish anger. Some of you will respond with a judgmental prejudice towards someone else. Some of you will misrepresent yourself with a lie. Some will gossip, some will be prideful, some will look at porn, some will be greedy at the dinner table. Some of you will stubbornly refuse God's call to a particular action. All of those are possibilities for any given day, and all of those are actions for which Christ had to die. 
But the issue here is whether or not you're placing yourself under the lordship of Christ and repenting and striving to emulate him. We will all fail, but every sin should drive us back to the cross and praise God for the substitute of Christ Jesus and ask the Spirit to lead us towards holiness. We should be making steady improvement each and every day in our personal battle with sin. We're never going to be perfect, but a true believer in Christ is always going back to the gospel to mold his or her behavior. The situation here is a person that claims Christ as Savior, but is refusing to bring a sin or the sins under the lordship of Jesus. They have no desire for repentance. So individually, you confront the person about it. And let me just add from experience, when you have such a confrontation, your personal opinion rarely matters in the moment, and the degree to which you've been personally wounded may or may not matter as well. What matters is that the person sees their sin in light of God's word. Therefore, always use the Bible so that the Holy Spirit may bring conviction. Hebrews chapter 4, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The first place they must be convinced of their sin is with God. That is where true repentance occurs. It must begin in the heart and in one's posture towards the Lord. David had extramarital sex with Bathsheba. Then he murdered her husband. And when confronted with the sin, he spoke to God in Psalm 51, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Posture and motive in your confrontation towards this individual is as important as well. Remember, we're to be as humble uh, or be humble as Jesus already said here in verse 4. We are seeking the the restitution of the fallen brother or sister, not to, to place them under our thumb or to extract our pound of flesh. We are receiving back as an equal a brother, not someone that we can belittle due to their transgression or our own self righteousness. Now, I found that most disagreements. And most sinful conflict can be cleared up with just this one-on-one confrontation. I also would have you note that while most people think a response should be immediate, Jesus doesn't specify a time limit. I know from experience, sometimes a person needs to consider and ponder the gravity of the confrontation, the love that's being shown that a brother would take time to intercede on this, and, and then also the destructive nature of their sin. That realization is not always immediate. It may take a few days, possibly weeks to work out. But when sufficient warning and time has been given and they refuse to repent, you move to step two, where you gather one or two others to join you in a call to repentance. This is for two reasons. First, the unrepentant person would know this is serious. This is not just Blair's opinion, but But also my fellow brothers, Brian and Randy, also agree that this needs to be dealt with. I should awaken the sinner here that the issue is that serious, that they're not acting like a believer in this. It has run to the point that others question whether or not they're saved. And second, the idea of carrying two more witnesses is also an Old Testament concept under the law of God. 
If the matter had to be brought before the court of the assembly later on, there would be more than one testimony to validate the charge. This is Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. The New Testament continued to appropriate this teaching. Not only do we have Jesus instructing us to do the same here in Matthew 18, but Paul insists on the same in 1 Corinthians 13:1 and in 1 Timothy 5:19. A good practical practice on this is to take someone with you that is spiritually mature along for it. Sin is wickedly deceptive. A person who is hiding sin while pretending to be repentant is not uncommon. So Paul instructs in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, but keep a watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. This is generally why elders deal with such cases, but they're not limited to just elders. It should be the spiritually mature that are handling it. It's hoped that the sin can be dealt with privately before it becomes public. But if they refuse to repent from this small contingent, then you move to the third step. The matter is to be taken before the entire church. Now, this is the second time that Jesus uses this word church in Matthew. The last was in Matthew chapter 16, which I'm going to speak about in just a few minutes. It is the Greek word ekklesia, which is normally translated as assembly. The Christians of the first century who were more familiar with the Greek translation of the Old Testament would have understood the reference to the assembly. This would have been the covenant community, the ones whom Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church, my ecclesia, my assembly, my covenant community. This would be his people to which the report of the unrepentance is brought. The matter is to be brought before all of them. And it's obvious from the implied text that the body is to issue a call to repentance. This would be some type of warning saying, dear brother or sister, we are concerned for your soul. Your sin has you fooled right now. You're not seeking repentance or the right means of repentance. Your behavior has grown to the point that is completely inconsistent with Christ. Please turn and, and seek help from your brothers and sisters. Now, I'm going to go ahead and propose this is why you need to be present in church meetings so that you can listen and hear about these things. This is not something you just disseminate the information into the entire community. It is only something in which this church itself sits in judgment on. And then there is the final step. If they refuse to listen to the church, they are to be excommunicated, excluded from the privileges of church membership, meaning you must remain outside of us until you repent. You should no longer take the Lord's Supper since you act like you don't belong in the body of Christ, which by the way, here is another reason you should not absent yourself from communion consistently. You no longer should hold any positions in the church or represent the church in any matters. And for some, it might mean that you might not have the trust of the congregation in personal matters. For example, I am not gonna let my former church member who by occupation was a finance officer that was caught embezzling money, have access to my retirement account right now. Depending on the circumstances, I might not let you babysit my children because of a lack of trust in the nature of your unrepentant sin. If you're having an extramarital affair, I'm not gonna have dinner with you and your girlfriend in public as though I approve of the relationship. 
Prudence will now dictate how much personal access are grant, you're granted now with my time and my family based upon the influence that you may have upon them. But corrective discipline does not mean that the excommunicated cannot attend worship services with believers. In fact, I would say if they will come, let them come. They need to hear the gospel. Even when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I don't think Paul's intention is not to give access to the body of Christ when he says don't associate with such a one nor eat with them. I would say that the reputation of the church and how they boasted about their leniency towards that sin was what was at stake. We don't just gloss over the excommunicated sinner as though it's no big deal. But as long as they're willing to meet, we meet to share the gospel and call them to repentance. But again, I'd caution you from Galatians 6.1. Only the spiritual mature should do this. I can't tell you how many times I've dealt with someone who could deceive well, who could manipulate, who could make me even question the scriptures and pretend they're sorrowful only to continue the actions and seek to fool me that they were genuinely repentant. The goal is not just that the sinner portrays themselves as repentant, but that they take responsibility for their sin and genuinely repent. So this is the four-step process for discipline towards repentance. The first three steps might be unpleasant to deal with, but only the punitive result is the final step. There's been a, a painstaking degree of patient love and affection for the person leading up to this final step. And based upon 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I would hope that that doesn't become the final decision, but that we're constantly calling the person to repentance and then welcoming them back to be a part of us. So if you notice in this four-step process, no single person had the authority to dismiss a fellow brother or sister. The authority rested in the body of believers overall. For example, I could issue a pastoral Blair Bull and say, Sister so-and-so has been excommunicated. But that has no power whatsoever if the rest of the church ignores her unrepentance by acting the same towards her, and the elders continue to serve her the Lord's Supper, and you continue to bring her children to her Sunday school class. The power of such exclusion rests in the church body itself. Now, if you will, turn a couple of pages back to Matthew chapter 16. If you're in the Pew Bible, it's just actually on the very next page. We saw this passage towards the end of last year. Here, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says in verse 17, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now we saw that Jesus was including Peter in his church based upon his profession of faith. He says Peter will be given keys. Keys implies stewardship. The head steward of a first century household is the one who provided access into the home. They determined who goes in and who goes out. They had the keys. They were responsible for security and, and the replenishment of supplies in the home. No one got in unless the steward approved access and believed that the person entering was not a threat. He might bind a person to the household or he might fire them. He declared whether or not a servant was trustworthy. And Jesus told Peter, you are going to be one of those people that do that for me. 
Now, I want to be clear here. Peter's declaration does not make a person trustworthy. They either are or they are not already. But Peter, in this role as steward, examines the credentials of this new person and declares whether or not the visitor is trustworthy to be part of the household. He doesn't make him trustworthy. He discovers he's trustworthy already and validates that. He has the authority to say this person has been tested and meets approval and you can welcome her as one of our own now. Now sadly, this has led to people thinking that Peter is the first pope and only he had that power, but that's not the case. Now turn back again to Matthew chapter 18. Here, Jesus doesn't just say Peter makes those decisions. The entire church makes the decision. Verse 18, truly I say to you, Now, we need to stop here and point out in Greek, this is the second person plural. If you're from the South, we would interpret this as y'all. If you're from certain sections of the North, you might say you skies. All right. All right. So again, here we go with it. Whatever you, whatever y'all, again, second person plural, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever y'all loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to y'all, if two, or you, two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. We can make judgments on a person's profession of faith as believers because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. And as a system of beautiful checks and balances, the entire church is to be in agreement with this. Putting someone outside of the church is serious business just as much as admitting them into membership. In discipline, we're telling that person, you no longer represent Christ. In fact, your behavior, bias example, is pulling others away from the gospel or perhaps even portraying a false gospel. So when we get back to Jesus' original question here, who is the greatest in the kingdom? The answer is still no one. We are all on equal terms. All of us are under the lordship of Christ. You are under it. I as the pastor am under it. Every elder, every deacon, every teacher is under it. All of us are the same. And all of us have a place and a part to play at the table when someone is either admitted or excluded. If you ignore the dismissal of someone in the church, then you need to know by doing so, you're saying, well, I and not the corporate body am capable of making a judgment on my own, and I don't care what other believers think. I don't care about the sinful actions of my brother or sister that's in sin right now. That is a dangerous and prideful place to be. So I'm often asked, are are there exceptions to this paradigm? Is there ever a case where you skip a step Paul seems to indicate there are times it may be appropriate to do so for the public witness of the church. Let me briefly just show you two examples of this. The first we reference is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is found on page 934 of your pew Bible. In this passage, it would appear that the Corinthian church was boasting about how tolerant they were. They had within the fellowship, participating in the Lord's Supper, a man who was having a known affair with his stepmother. Now, the text has a euphemism here. It says, a man has his father's wife. Not his mother, but his father's wife. Everyone knew what was going on. Even Paul heard about it. 
This was such a despicable, dishonorable action, one that even Roman culture found offensive, much less a violation of God's law. They should have been mourning that they had such a man among them. Instead, they were arrogant and they were boasting. Probably the man's family had some standing in the community. Kind of like us saying, hey, the U.S. senator attends our church. Yeah, but isn't he sleeping with his dad's wife? Yeah, but at least he's coming to our church each week. Paul tells them, look, all of you have lost your bearings. In fact, Paul pulls from his own apostolic authority and the fact that he too has the Holy Spirit. He tells them what to do in verses 4 and 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. There's no need to establish witnesses here. Everybody already knows this is a bad thing that should be repented of. The reputation of the Lord Jesus and his church are at stake. If he has been sitting under the gospel and taking the supper this long, move to step four, put him out of the church and let him deal with the consequences of his actions in the hopes that it's going to bring him to repentance. Now, the second example comes from Titus while he's on the Isle of Crete. If you will, turn to Titus. This is found on page 999. Wow, I didn't know that. This time, Paul instructs Titus that if there is someone disrupting the unity of the church, then they get two chances, not three. Then you put them out of the church. Titus chapter 3, verse 10. As for a person who stirs up divisions, after warning him once, then twice, have nothing to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. Now, most likely, this would have been the quarrelsome individual that's mentioned in uh, the previous verse, verse 9. But here, again, public controversy in the body moves swiftly. Titus, deal with it. Otherwise, the church is going to be so conflicted they can't act as one. But in two of the three cases that we've looked at, while a single person may have been the spearhead to the corrective action, it was the church... That was the ultimate authority. If there was no local body that they were formally connected to, then there was nothing to put them out of. It was the church who covenanted with Christ that acted. So if there are possible bypasses to the paradigm in Matthew 18, the best way to approach this is to remember what is the goal? What is it that's supposed to be accomplished? Well, it's to preserve the unity of the body of Christ, It's to preserve the integrity of the body of Christ. It's to promote the glory of the body of Christ. And it demonstrates the power of the gospel of Christ. Now, it preserves the unity in that we won't let a small group of individuals divide us. None of us are lone rangers. We are called to do life together under the lordship of King Jesus. He is the king and we unify under him. Therefore, we do our master's bidding and go after the stray sheep calling them to repentance. It preserves the integrity of the church and that we show the world that we are serious about unrepentant sin among us. If we become with being nitpicky, then this is going to appear that we're just self-righteous and cultish. However, we do preserve our integrity when we tell someone, I love you and I'm willing to come after you to prevent you from perishing. We preserve our integrity as believers in Christ if a watching world and hurting brothers and sisters see that we take sin seriously and act on their behalf. This matters 
to the wife who was abandoned by her husband. It matters to the children who are abused by a parent. It matters to the citizens who sit under a greedy, partial judge of the law if he tends our church. It matters to a watching world who sees a church following a pastor with compromised doctrine. They will know that we're serious about taking Jesus at his word if we have the courage to act as one and conduct corrective discipline in this matter. And by doing so, a watching world will behold the glory of the body of Christ portrayed in his transformed children here who despite their battles with sin, they love one another, they encourage one another, aid one another in physical needs and in their sanctification. They see Christ working supernaturally among us in our love and our care. But remember, the hope, and that we keep holding it out as hope, is that such a brother and sister will be restored. The little children repent and they submit to the Lord's gospel once again. I have seen this occur more often than in a full excommunication. The person in sin, once again, is confronted with the gospel. They see that Christ died for their actions and that he still loves them and that he still offers his affections toward them. But he doesn't want them to settle for the world instead of for him. Then, once again, we witness the forgiveness, not only from Jesus, but also from the offended member and maybe the offended church. We're going to see this a lot more, Lord willing, next week. But supernaturally, the power of the gospel is displayed. The church is able to forgive and hold no record of wrong and welcome back the sinner in love and restore them to full fellowship. What a powerful example of the gospel in all of us. Therefore, we get to witness the power of the gospel once again. We see the Lord Jesus prove himself over and over again in our lives. And we see that even when we run away, he still draws near to us and will never let us go. God uses his church as his instrument to draw us to him and hold us close to him, especially when we drift astray. And I, for one, am thankful for that. Let's pray. Lord, we know that such matters are uncomfortable. And Lord, we thank you that, I thank you that as a pastor, I see step one of this paradigm that Jesus gave us work all the time. It is just such amazing how just one simple act of courage of one individual going to another and saying, I'm concerned. How can I help? How can we make this right? That, Lord, such actions display the gospel in daily living, and it's a beautiful thing. Perhaps we've grown to view it as mundane, when actually, Lord, two sinners who have offended one another come back together in unity. That is a beautiful display of the gospel. And yet, Lord, I've also seen the the full range of church discipline. Even my heart now can think of two individuals, Lord, that I would so desire to see them fully restored. It's not that I feel judgmental towards their behavior. I fear for their souls. So, Lord, we pray we would have a type of spirit in this 
that would seek the true measure of the gospel, to see the glory of you calling sinners to yourself, and for them to apply the redemption that Christ achieved on the cross on our behalf, and to, to see them placing their faith once again in the righteousness of Christ and not in their own. We pray, Lord, that, that we would have the, the spirit of a church that, that always is welcoming the sinner, Lord, and always seeking repentance towards one another, Lord, so that you might be glorified, that we are not seeking to become the greatest, but we're seeking one another's good, recognizing we're all equal before you. And so, Lord, we pray that in the midst of this, that we would realize that this is a tool you use to continue to hold us fast to yourself. We know, Lord, that it is your desire not to see any of us perish. And we are so grateful, Lord, that you have put the instrument of the church, Lord, the body, the institution of the church, the, the body of Christ among us, Lord, so that you can keep us to yourself, so that you can work in that, Lord, to draw us towards you and to keep us working towards our sanctification until your son comes once again. And so, Lord, let us see the beauty of that, of how you are holding us. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone, who achieved this on our behalf. Amen.